I go up there to the north, will something feel like I've been there before? Or will I hear something in the trees? Or will I hear something in the wind? Or will something just click where I'm like, yeah, I think I've been here before. And I'm just accepted for who I am. Something strange happened that when I moved back to Vancouver Island to, to join the University of Victoria, almost overnight, the uh, the feelings of connection that I had to this place came back and it felt more comfortable than anything I had experienced before. You're listening to Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation. I'm George Lee, my co-host is Jessica Vandenberg, and our guests are Chris Dennison and Jessica Vandenberg. It is always a great honour to be asked to acknowledge the land we stand on and the peoples of this land. This podcast is being recorded on the traditional territory of Treaty 6, Métis Nation, Zone Number 4 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And you may be joining from another treaty region, another Métis Nation zone, unceded land, or a different area. We stand upon a land that carries the footsteps and hearts of many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples that have been here for thousands of years and many generations. We would like to acknowledge our and their relationship with Mother Earth and the traumatic and oppressive history that they have been through. It is an interconnected relationship that we have with land spirit, but we're all relations and we all have an obligation to that relationship. This land has nourished and healed, protected and embraced us. And we're grateful to the Indigenous peoples that have been stewards of this interconnected relationship with Mother Earth and Land Spirit. We're all relations, and as such, we all respect each other in our beliefs, but also our own individual relationships with Mother Earth and Land Spirit. And so from my heart and spirit to yours, I open this podcast in a good way. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 1 of Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation. A few writ large program notes before we get rolling. First of all, this season we've moved to a monthly plus bonus episodes format. That should keep us in your podcast feed more predictably, plus allow us to do a better job of promoting each episode. Until now, we've done these little tranches of weekly shows. Those days are over. Our monthly anchor shows will typically drop on the last Thursday of every month, but in September, we'll always drop our season-launching episode on Canada's National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, September 30th, also known as Orange Shirt Day. These monthly anchor shows will tend to be issue-based conversations between Jessica, me, and, whenever possible, guests of the show. Bonus episodes will drop as they arise between the anchor episodes, and they'll tend to be the more journey-driven stories you've come to expect, i.e. Indigenous and non-Indigenous guests telling us about their lives and how they relate to truth and conciliation. More information on all of this appears on our Facebook page. And this just in, we're now accepting single and ongoing monetary contributions through the Coffee and PayPal platforms, So if you like what we're doing and you want to keep the episodes coming, look for more information in our podcast notes and on our Facebook page. Anyway, on to today's episode. So this one is all about Jessica's plans for a road trip to and through her homeland, Denita First Nation, with her friend and traveling companion, Chris Dennison. The three of us discuss the importance of home, family, and land spirit in our identities, finding home and family in the people who pass through our lives, regardless of where they come from, some of the tantalizing yet challenging connections that Jessica has already made with her homeland, Chris's allyship journey, and is ally even the right word? Tempering the virtuousness of colonial Canada with the realities of decolonization, 
the roles of Indigenous knowledge in addressing environmental challenges and in being a lifelong learner, and much more. The trip itself has now taken place, so we'll be revisiting the story in a bonus episode in October. So, let's go. So today on the podcast, we're shaking things up a bit. I'm moving from one of the co-host chairs to one of the guest chairs. My friend Chris Dennison and I are going to talk with George about a trip that we're going to be taking this summer to the Deneta First Nation, my home community, a place I've never been before. And there is a story there. And so today we're going to tell a piece of it and we'll likely tell another piece of it when we come back from this trip. So take it over, George, please. Okay, that sounds good, Jessica, except I am going to just hand it right back to you because I'd like you to introduce Chris. So I guess you're not completely absolved of co-hosting duties. All right, sounds good. So it's my pleasure to introduce Chris Dennison. He's a PhD and a professional engineer, as I am. He's an associate professor in the program director of biomedical engineering at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. He's earned a master's in applied science and his PhD at the University of Victoria and then postdoctoral fellowship that led him across the water to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver for a postdoctoral fellowship. Chris spent eight years in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Alberta. And that is where we met, where he volunteered for a number of the programs within the portfolio that I hold at the University of Alberta as assistant dean. And so, Chris, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself, about your research, wherever you want to go with the conversation? Yeah, thanks a lot. As was mentioned, I did most of my degrees in mechanical engineering at both the University of Victoria and uh, postdoctoral studies at UBC. And over that time, learned a lot about biomedical engineering and biomechanics. And that's the topic of, of my research that goes on today. And the things that my research group focuses on are uh, related to something called trauma biomechanics. And one easy to understand everyday example of, of trauma biomechanics would be the current debate that relates to brain injury in, in sports and the protective headgear that engineers typically design to prevent those brain injuries or at least make them less severe. So people that do trauma biomechanics um, worry about those sorts of things and a wide range of other injuries that humans sustain to things like fractures of bone. And the list is, is frankly endless, but that's the basic and short version of, of what we do. When I met Jessica at U of A, it was uh, during my role as the director of their biomedical engineering undergraduate program and also as uh, one of the associate chairs for the graduate program in mechanical engineering. And part of that role allowed me to do a lot more work and thinking in the arena of outreach. And uh, it wasn't too long after I took on that role that I was introduced to Jessica and learned about the programs that she ran within the faculty. And I tried to get myself and my students engaged in it. And uh, before I left U of A, I was lucky enough to volunteer in a few different venues. Uh, we kept in touch since I left and, and here we are today. Chris, thanks for that. And now I have the honor of introducing our second guest, Jessica Vandenberg. Regular listeners already know a lot about Jessica. So for them, this is a refresher. Jessica is an industrial professor and assistant dean with the University of Alberta Faculty of Engineering in Edmonton. She supports the 94 Calls to Action as a public speaker, a mentor, a volunteer, a role model, and an all-round champion of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Much of her emphasis is on improving access to the STEM fields, that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. A passionate and outspoken speaker, Jessica is in high demand as a presenter and panelist. A member of the Dene Toff First Nation in Northern Alberta, Jessica is a 60s scooper raised in a loving German-Canadian family on a Grand Prairie farm. For much of her adult life, she's been reconnecting with her Indigenous roots while dealing with the effects of racism and colonial attitudes. Jessica's career has included consulting engineering, regulatory engineering, and oil sands research engineering. She has a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering and a master's in chemical and mining engineering. So, Jessica, welcome to your podcast. Thanks, George. That's a lot of mentioning the word engineering in the <laughs> last piece. <there. laughs> well, there, there's, there's been a lot of engineering in your life, Jessica. <laughs> That's very true. Um, so thanks for the introduction. As Jessica knows we make the podcast as conversational as possible. So either of you, feel free to chime in as you see fit. I'm going to start with a question for Jessica. I'd like just a description of your road trip and why it's important to you. 
For sure. So as I've shared on this podcast, I'm a 60 scooper. So that means I was in the foster adoption system. When I was growing up, I wanted to meet my birth family. But of course, that's a bit of a roller coaster of emotions and wanting to take that route is not an easy one because you never know what you're going to come across. And your head goes everywhere. It goes everywhere from believing what I was told, which is that they were dead to, you know, their leaders within their community and everything in between. When I was pregnant with my daughter, I was really motivated to learn more about my birth family. And so I went to meet them. And that in itself has been a roller coaster as well. But as I explore the relationship with them, um, what the elders and knowledge keepers have told me and other 60 scoopers is that it's important to go back to your home community. There'll be pieces of yourself that will make sense uh, when you go back. As First Nations people, we are tied to the land. The belief is we are the land. We are the medicine with the following of natural law and that there'll be something there I'm not quite sure what I'm searching for, but something that maybe will feel more complete or something that will feel more healed or it will put a stop to some of the the narratives that go in my head related to childhood trauma. I had a chance throughout Indigenous History People's Month, we've been doing quite a few events and we held a sharing circle with one of our elders. And when we were introducing her, it was mentioned that she is from the Taltan Nation in Northern BC and her people have been there for 15,000 years. And so she can trace back her family lines 15,000 years in that home community. And so, you know, as someone who finds home wherever I go, I think it will be an interesting experience to see if there is a connection to the land there or if there's a connection to ancestors or connection to family members where we can trace our lines back 15,000 years. I mean, as an adopted person, I can trace my lines back maybe a generation or two, but I don't know the rest. So I'm always searching and seeking out what that is. And so this idea of going to the home community is one that I've thought about for a long time, but I've never found the right fit of person to go with because it has to be the right person who can just take care of things and support me. It's not about me supporting them or about knowing how to handle any situation, right? Because I, I don't know what will happen. It might go smoothly. It might not go smoothly. I might panic. I might not, right? It, it might be big or it might be small or it might be nothing. It could be anything. And I need someone to go with me. And so that someone just happens to be Chris. And so that's uh, kind of the intent of this road trip. Love to find out what you have managed to learn about your home nation or if there's any insights just from the research you've done over the years that you have. So I've looked a little bit into it, um, but I find if I look into it, then I get overwhelmed. So I've tried not to look too much into it, but my curiosity is there and it surfaces sometimes when I least expect it. And so to me, those are all indicators that there's something that I need to learn about there. So, for example, one of the programs that we run at the university is called Engage North or U Alberta North. And so we send students into Northern First Nations communities. They run projects up there. And Engage North has been sending students to my home community, to Dene Talk, for a number of years. And so when we're talking with them about partnerships, the community keeps coming up. Or having met my family every once in a while, the chief of the community will call me and say, hey, it's your uncle. <laughs> we have, um, we, I need some advice or, you know, I need a connection or can we put your name forward for something? And, and I'll be like, okay. And so little indicators that come here and there, or I do some work with the Métis settlements and Paddle Prairie is very close to the home community. People know people in both communities. And so it will come up. And so for me, when the universe sends you signs over and over again, it's trying to tell you something. And so... It's feeling like it's time to go. Ok, 
Okay, everyone, we're taking a small break from this episode to talk about one of our contemporaries in the online media landscape, and that's Superstar X Magazine, which I like to think of as a quirky cousin of our podcast. Quirky for sure. That's one take on Superstar X Magazine. Quirky, but in a really, really important and meaningful way. We very much share a parallel type of existence with Superstar X, even around the time that we launched We share definitely the same approach and value system, respecting identity and individuality, really looking to provide some exposure to a variety of diversity. And we know that the Superstar X magazine team really, really is a strong ally to Indigenous peoples. And they understand that it's a complicated relationship between Indigenous peoples, settlers, Canadians, newcomers, everyone that lives here on Turtle Island. And so like us, Superstar X recognizes the colonial past and the present. People in Canada share, along with the persistent racism and bigotry that we live with. So you alluded to the fact that we began life together, these two entities. So the magazine began its life on September 26, 2020, and we just launched a few days later on September 30th. Now, that was the height of the pandemic, and it was also Orange Shirt Day. So the same day, two years later, now it's also known as Canada's National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And here we are again. We're launching our podcast's third season at the same time our friend Nicole Weatherly is dropping the fifth issue of Superstar X magazine. This edition is called Love 2022. And this edition, Love 2022, has a strong connection to this podcast, stronger than usual. And I want to talk about that a little bit more. But first, I want to note that the magazine's scope is wider than ours. Its purpose is to celebrate what it means to be human and to destigmatize being different. And Nicole and her team combine stories and art really to build those connections. There's a fascinating backstory about that art plus stories equation. Yes, there is. The magazine is very much inspired by the life and artwork of Nicole's brother, Edward K. Weatherly. Nicole created Superstar X as a platform in celebration of Edward's work and his uniqueness, and in essence, putting his art and his story at the forefront of a goal to build connections. That's so similar to one of our taglines, that we think all of us have the opportunity to build a better nation of nations, one conversation at a time. Just jumping back to Edward, Nicole's brother, he showed signs of genius and talent in all kinds of spaces as a boy. Not only did he have a high IQ, but he excelled in science fairs and piano playing, in musical theater and in track and field. He first came into Nicole's life in Sar, a small town south of Wainwright, Alberta, on Treaty 6 land, Métis Region 3, back in 1976. And there's all kinds of content about Edward on Superstar X websites and within the magazines. But I should mention here that in 1999, he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and substance abuse disorder. Edward had always been different, but this was a different type of difference. There was a type of difference that was acceptable. And then once he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and substance abuse disorder, it was no longer the societal acceptable type of difference. While in the hospital, he started creating pop graffiti art for the first time. And from that comes much of the blueprint for Superstar X. Unfortunately, Nicole and Edward's last contact was in 2017. The year she incorporated Superstar X, and she doesn't know where he is right now. Such a sad, poignant, yet hopeful story. The whole story is on the Super X website, and the link appears in podcast notes for this episode. Let's talk about the current edition of the magazine, though, Love 2022. So the foundation of our podcast is the 94 Calls to Action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And we've talked to a lot of people about the calls to action and how they answer them in their own ways. And I know that we plan to continue down that road in many of the episodes that lie ahead. Nicole has been walking a path parallel to ours. There's no question about this. This fifth edition is focused on truth and reconciliation, or conciliation as we call it. Nicole and her team are showcasing Indigenous peoples and allies, their ways and stories and the wonderful things that they're doing to move Canada to a place of reciprocity, of walking together, of healing, and of understanding that truth. Is it okay if I jump in with a quote? And this is a a cis white guy quotation, as it turns out. For sure. Go for it. My friends, love is better than anger. Hope is better than fear. Optimism is better than despair. So let us be loving, hopeful, 
and optimistic and we'll change the world. I think that was Jack Layton, right? And you would be right. So he's a past national leader of the NDP. So I saw those words written in chalk along an Edmonton sidewalk shortly after he died. And I think of them often, given where we are now, especially when it comes to civil discourse and the lack thereof in the world. I turn to those words for inspiration, and I like to think podcasts like ours and magazines like Nicole's do their best to live them. Yes, it's hard sometimes, but those words are something to aspire to. And we need to celebrate diversity rather than demonize it, which is part of what Leighton was talking about. There's much to learn from the wisdom of Indigenous peoples in pursuing that path, too, and from people like Nicole Weatherly and the people celebrated in her magazine. So true. Okay, I get to quote something, too. (laughs) So, George, you and Nicole are non-Indigenous allies for me, and that matters so much. And so I'd like to quote one of our past guests about how allyship works. She's one whose wisdom continues to speak to me, and I've returned to this quote many times. This was something she had learned from the trans community. I'm not sure if it originates with her, but here it is. Sometimes to be an ally, you need to stand in front of those you are an ally to. Sometimes you need to stand beside, and sometimes you need to stand behind. That's Lydia Torenberg. You bet. That's from Lydia. Lydia is a Bungie Métis, two-spirit anthropologist from Victoria, British Columbia. Our podcast and Superstar X have chosen to stand side by side on September 30th and also lead the way in our journeys. And you and Nicole also stand back and give Indigenous voices a platform. Thanks, Jessica. That means a lot. One final note is that the magazine is part of an online community journey, too. With that goal in mind, there are virtual events continuing until December 10th. So we'd love it for listeners to continue their journey by joining the Superstar X journey. Go to the podcast notes for a link or simply type Superstar X into your favorite search engine. Also, we plan to have Nicole on as a guest in season three. And now back to our regular show. You're listening to Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation. I'm Jessica Vandenberg. My co-host is George Lee and our guests are Chris Dennison and me. Settlers can become very upset, internally upset with kind of what's going on with truth and reconciliation and seek out the support of Indigenous people. So now we have like a very interesting kind of two-person example of the dynamic that goes on. So I'd like to bring Chris in and just have him talk a little bit about uh, what he understands his role to be on this journey. I think Jessica, correct me if I'm wrong, but we started to talk seriously about going north in around the December timeframe, if I'm not mistaken. I think the conversation started off with uh, nothing specific in mind. Just as we were talking about our past adventures on trips that we had both gone on, I told stories about driving to Alaska with friends of mine and carrying a spare engine in the back of our Volkswagen so that we could repair roadside calamities and replacing tires that had fallen off cars along the way and other things that had happened on other hiking adventures. And so I think those sorts of stories told the the notion that um, mechanically I could take care of things if anything (laughs) had transpired. Along the same time, right before I left, actually before I left you, Alberta, I started to sit um, through the TRC series that Jessica offers and learned a little bit more. Frankly, learned for the first time a lot of the truth about what had gone on in Canada. It just snowballed from there. Your question to me was, how do I view my role as the support? It's, uh, I think it'll be a mixture of road crew, uh, roadside mechanic, somebody to talk to. And then as we get closer to the trip and as I learn more about the issues at play and the feelings that they create inside Jessica, be somebody that can um, read the situation and if needed, take action and also know when to hang back and just let things unfold so that at the end of it, in whatever direction it needs to go and whatever the outcome is, it's it's uh, one that you know Jessica can emerge safe from and come back home. Jessica, would you like to expand on that at all? Is there anything you'd like to add? No, I think um, Chris covered it all. And it, it hits upon, you know, George, uh, something like I always go back to what Lydia and Torenberg said about allyship, right? That 
you know, you got to know when to stand in front and protect and when to stand beside and support. And when you stand behind and hang back and let that person take the lead, right? And and that is what I heard in Chris's answer there. That's he is there to support me. And, and that to me is a great indicator that I think I'd feel safe, number one, right? I need to foremost feel safe that someone can handle whatever situation comes and that's you know the feeling i get so chris we have a little producer to guest discussion about the term ally so you mentioned that about six years ago it really came to you that there are some really untenable things going on in indigenous communities across canada could you expand on that a little bit about when you as a as a settler canadian became aware of some of the issues that are everyday life for Jessica. Yeah. So, um, you know, growing up in Canada and going to public schools in Canada, we learn stories from textbooks that are written in a way that uh, I think uh, with respect to those authors, they, they talk about the history of Canada in a very cleansed fashion that talks more about dates and when, which culture met the other culture and leaves out a lot of the issues that were probably created um, hundreds of years ago, but then, but stay with us today. And as um, when I got into my thirties and uh, especially started to work as a professor in university and decolonization and EDI were things that were talked about more and more, it just naturally led me to pay more attention to news stories and conversations with people like Jessica and my colleagues. And Learning things like just how many First Nations don't have access to fresh water in a country as rich as Canada was really eye-opening to me. I don't want to sound critical with my words here, but when the pandemic struck and the world was able to find dollars to you know keep people whole for a few months so that they could pay rent, it was really a moving thing, and it was celebrated as a you know a positive thing for humanity, and it and it made me wonder in retrospect. There's other issues that are of similar magnitude. Why aren't similar things happening there? And it's tough questions to to grapple with, again, because as a Canadian growing up in Canada and hearing the stories about the role that Canada has played in, in the world, you, you come away with a pretty virtuous view of the country. And I'm not saying that there um, that's not true, but there's a lot of work that is still yet to be done. The more and more I learned, the more sessions I sat through with Jessica just the issues that remain at play, like elements of the Indian Act and government agencies. Um, it's really eye-opening stuff. I think I understand in a similar way to you, this feeling as a, this virtuousness you talk about, I want to keep believing in my country, but the ultimate thing that has me believing in my country is if we deal with this in a proper, sympathetic and empathetic way, rather than just a, just a way that relies on stereotypes and excuse making for allowing it to continue mm -hmm. yeah the other part of your question that i didn't really touch on was the the notion of ally and it's frankly a term that i don't think i completely understand you know it had been used around me probably for the first time four years ago and when i hear the word ally i think of uh, something like a friend right somebody that you can count upon and that keeps their promises and is there for help when is needed but i think in in this context it's more than that you know, I've never attempted to describe myself as an ally, but I'd like to think that it's moving in that direction. But at the end of the day, I don't think the label is what ultimately matters. Like if we keep our promises to one another, and, and that's what I'm trying to do with Jessica, then that, that's the most important thing. This is the hard part, just to jump in a little bit around terminology. We've talked before, George, that the English language is very limiting. And the Eurocentric viewpoint of a notion is very binary and very black and white, right? Like, you know, when I work with folks that run programs that are typically of settler background and they work with elders and I hear them turn the elder teachings into something that's very black and white, you know, I shake my head a little bit. I'm like, you're missing the nuances that there are probably um, 10 different teachings within one statement, right? And you got to go back and you got to think on it and you got to think about how it applies, not just in the situation before you, but other situations and experiences as well. And that there's always teachings within teachings and hooks where you need to go back and seek more guidance. Like it's it's the idea and notion of continual learning. And that's why I think 
a lot of the Indigenous culture teachings I've had align a lot with the value system that we're taught as professional engineers. And this idea that we're always continual learners and that we're always trying to see things from different angles to see the risks and see the perceptions of it and, and that side of it too. You know, that part of this has really been fascinating for me is some of the engineering people we've, we've had the, the pleasure of being able to interview and some of the solution-based thinking that there is on so many things that can come from an Indigenous perspective. And you've taught me so much, Jessica, about the relationship between Indigenous people and all their relations, and their relations include land. I mean, my simplistic viewpoint when we first met was, well, we just need Indigenous people at the table all the time, and therefore we can just exploit the land like we're supposed to. Oversimplification of what I felt. But I mean, I used terms like exploit quite freely when I talked about resources and land, although I'd never really thought of myself as anti-environmentalism. I still had a fairly simplistic idea of what it is that Indigenous people can really bring to the table. And especially as we get some Indigenous people into more, into more of the STEM areas, into things like engineering, there are some viewpoints that can really guide us into like a non-carbon future, which eventually we really have to face in this country. And what does that look like? As you know better than I do as a chemical engineer, it's not as simple as just turning the taps off and suddenly we have a, a, a non-carbon system. We have so many things that, that rely on our carbon resources that we've used in the past. You know, um, what you said, um, it's upon something that I always find ironic in all this, right? So we have Indigenous people here, 15,000 years, uh, finding a way to live sustainably, live in harmony, live with imbalance and centered with uh, land, spirit, water, spirit, the planets, everything. Um, community is built, running their governance the way they need to run it. Settlers come, have a different viewpoint and attitude towards land. They strip the land, they take the energy, they take the spirit from the land, exploit it, build a capitalistic system. And now they're seeking the advice of Indigenous people to restore and patch up the mistakes that they have made in exploiting the land. And then they're going to say, oh, you know, this is our opportunity to learn something new from Indigenous people. This is so ironic that that's how things were run before. And instead, uh, having to come and contribute to fixing the mistakes that weren't ours to begin with, right? And it just is so funny. These ironies strike me all the time. Uh, we had the conversation, I think, George, about uh, evolution of the Canada Food Guide. I, I'm not sure if I had that conversation here in another arena, but... Again, the Canada Food Guide was developed based on malnutrition testing on residential school kids. And then because of that came about a lot of diabetes within the communities, a lot of tuberculosis, things like that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm someone who is borderline diabetic. I had gestational diabetes with my kids when I was pregnant with them. And I've got to watch because I walk a fine line. Um, but what do the doctors tell me to use? They tell me to use the Canada Food Guide. And it just, like, ironies like that just sometimes just really, really make me angry because they're situations that we wouldn't have been in if it wasn't for colonialism. You're listening to Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation. I'm George Lee. My co-host is Jessica Vandenberg. And our guests are Chris Dennison and Jessica Vandenberg. Sounds a lot like an earlier question, but I'm trying to get after this whole idea of what this represents to an individual and what this represents to all of us when we seek out home. We've talked about the Cree teaching of Wakotuin before on here. So Wakotuin really is about interconnectedness, that we are individuals. As individuals, we're part of families. Our families are part of communities. Communities are part of nations. Often the Eurocentric viewpoint ends around there, but then your nations are also part of the universe. The universe is part of a, a spiritual world as well, right? So 
building within these that we're all interconnected and we all play together and that anything that I do has an impact on all the relations that exist within this construct, right? So when I think about home at an individual level, home, similar to what we've heard before about what reconciliation means to some people, home to me is a feeling, right? Like it's a, what I am looking for is belonging, right? A place where uh, I'm just accepted, where I'm supported. And I've been searching for that for a long time because I didn't always feel like I fit in the many places I've walked. So I've traveled the world trying to find this feeling of belonging. And I find that I find it in people instead of places. So I find it in certain friends or even, you know, around certain strangers. I don't even have to have an existing relationship with them, but certain people give off a feeling of acceptance or calmness or something that like that, that feels like I could belong with them. And often that inspires me to strike up a conversation with them and then form a friendship with them. And then, um, you know, then they're part of my community. And then I have a home within this community that I've built that is not necessarily land-based. But when it comes to going to this home community, I think what I'm wondering and curious about is that, will I have a land-based tie to somewhere you know, I've spent a lot of time in nature. Um, I love hiking. I love adventures. I love camping. I love uh, skiing and standing on top of mountains and seeing the ends of the world. These are the things that I love, right? And and so there are a lot of places where I find calm and balance, uh, especially in the mountains. Like I love hiking up a mountain or standing on top of a mountain. I'm curious around if I go up there to the north, will something feel like I've been there before or something in the wind or will I, will something just click where I'm like, yeah, I think I've been here before and I'm just accepted for who I am. Will I hear something in the trees? That's kind of what home means to me and what I've been looking for. And I've stood in a lot of places in this world. Like I've stood places where people claim their spiritual relevance and things like that. So I've stood in Stonehenge and I've stood in Machu Picchu in Peru and stood where oceans collide. I've stood where uh, volcanoes have erupted, all these different places, just trying to figure out where I belong. And so that's kind of what I'm searching for. That's a really powerful thing you said, because that is who we are, settlers, spiritually, that's who we are. We came to this land and we decided it was ours, you know, and I'm speaking, obviously, I'm talking about my ancestors and every other settler person's ancestors who've been here for for generations. But we kind of drew this line, like our one home was over there. And then this is the new land. And it's tied so much to our psychology. And also, as we know, it's also tied to the colonial and forced assimilation policies of the government that we formed here, you know, over time as we established ourselves here. So I find that really fascinating. Chris has been very patient in the background there. Do you have expectations for this trip that you'd like to discuss? It's interesting to hear you speak about um, connection to land because without ever realizing it, I think Growing up on the lower mainland of British Columbia and spending so much time on Vancouver Island specifically led me to feel a great connection to this place. I think the word I would have chosen to describe it when I was in my 20s would just be familiarity. You know, I was familiar with the place. And when I moved to live in other places like the interior of British Columbia or later in life, Alberta, they didn't feel familiar to me and in, in any discomfort I might have felt, I would have attributed to that, that lack of familiarity that would perhaps change over time. And, you know, after living in Alberta for eight years, I, uh, I really grew to feel a connection to Alberta, but something strange happened that when I moved back to Vancouver Island to, to join the University of Victoria, almost overnight, the feelings of connection that I had to this place came back and it felt more comfortable than anything I had experienced before. And the outlook on things changed and the places that I used to go hiking and the rivers that I used to fish in, I visited for the first time in, you know, 
in some cases, 12 years and, and the feelings came rushing back. I, I was telling Jessica the other day about hiking down some trails where I saw my own my own flagging tape that had been hanging in the trees for 15 years. And I recognized it instantly and remembered the, the details of the trail with almost perfect recall. <laughs> and uh, I don't remember anything that well. <laughs> so, so that's saying something. So what am I trying to say here? Well, what I chalked up to familiarity when I was younger, I think was... Um, that was wrong. Like there is a connection to land that you can uh, feel. Sometimes you have to go away and then come back to feel it. And so that's one of the things that I wonder if will happen to uh, Jessica. You know, I don't know how much time she's spent that far north in Alberta. We've talked a little bit about it, but I don't think I know the whole story. But I would wonder for her when she walks into the community and meets the folks that we'll meet, whether or not those feelings will come to her. That's something I wonder about. For myself, I, I think it will feel unfamiliar because it's a part of the province of Alberta that I hadn't been to, but I'm always up for an adventure and, you know, seeing Canada's North has been something that I've enjoyed a lot and uh, been to the territories and also Alaska and the United States. And it's, it's always a magical place. So I'll, I'll enjoy the ride and be there for Jessica in whatever uh, way I can be. So that's it. We've got to hand it over to you on that one, Jessica. So what are your expectations for this trip? So I'm trailing very hard not to have expectations for the trip. <laughs> and like that is to keep my own balance and center, right? Because we've talked a lot about on this podcast, traumatic things that I've been through and things like that. And so as I've shared on this podcast before, I've done work within First Nations, Métis settlements, Métis nations. I've met a lot of people. I've met a lot of friends people who I've worked for, people who I've helped. I've seen firsthand the state of affairs, the things that make me quite angry and disgusted for treatment and walls of children who committed suicide, things like that in some of the worst socioeconomic conditions. And uh, I'm someone, as you know, George, where people will just come up and tell me their stories. I just track people in that way. I guess people feel safe enough to share around me. So strangers will come up and tell me their stories. So when I go on to reserve, people will do that. But their stories sometimes are very horrific. Residential school stories, the reality of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, the reality of accusations that aren't true, of trying to find justice and being met with racism instead, and torn families, broken children. And I know in myself, there's pieces of that throughout my life, right? And so my head can easily go a million different ways, thinking about what it might look and feel like going home to this nation that my ancestors could date back 50,000 years. It could go to the place of my parents and their residential school stories that I will hear firsthand experience of what has happened to them. And for many generations of my family, what has happened to my aunties and uncles and cousins hear firsthand some of the stories I already know my sisters and her, and my nephews, um, death by fire in the house. I'll see the house. I'll see the graves. My uncle freezing to death, moose hunting, murder, suicide. And I'll see the impacts of that. And I worry about the stories that will just be told to me. And I worry about the heartbreak and the disgust and the anger that it will bring. So uh, those pieces worry me. It worries me that I won't be able to do anything. I worry a little bit about people expecting something from me or you know we've talked a lot about my uh, adoption story and things like that trying to seek identity and family with people who aren't blood family but forming relationships and obligation perhaps that I will feel towards people that are essentially strangers and how to handle that how to handle going into a community where they know more about my family than I do, and everybody does. George, I don't know if I ever shared this story with you, but I remember just walking around here. It was actually on campus at the University of Alberta. I forget what we were doing a panel talk for, but 
I was in uh, one of the places in the students' union building and a, a lady walks by with her daughter and she stops and she looks at me and she says, you are Maggie's daughter. I know you. I know your story. And she proceeded to tell me my story, things that I didn't know about myself. And her daughter worked to diffuse the situation because she could tell that it was disarming for me and I didn't know how to handle it. And uh, it's, it's stuff like that that I worry about what will come and whether things will touch upon traumatic things that have happened to me and just bring up all that stuff again. <laughs> I've worked very hard to try to move past and heal. And so, sorry, um, at times um, it's very overwhelming <laughs> to think about this. And so, you know, Chris is a good person to come and we've talked about this um, and how we can make it small so it doesn't feel so big. And so, you know, I feel better if I have a, a destination. I feel better if this is one stop on the way that this isn't the final destination. So when we talk about it, I like to talk that we're going to the Northwest Territories and this is just one step along the way. It's not the final destination. It helps me feel like there is a, a route out and that we don't have to stay. If we need to leave, we can leave. But if we choose to stay longer, we can stay longer. And I worry too about Chris. Like I know I said that he feels like the right person to handle any situation, but it does worry me because I've brought people onto reserve before and I always worry about their, the impact to them, mental, emotional weight, if they haven't been exposed to that before and what happens after you've been exposed to that, if you haven't been prepared for it or things you might see or things that you weren't ready to hear. And, you know, it, it's trying to keep these narratives about a million different pathways so that can go narrow and focused and not to let myself run into these rabbit holes. So when it comes to expectations, again, I'm trying not to have any. <laughs> um, it's, it's hard <laughs> some days and, and I'm trying to keep it small. And I've been building my supports around this for a while, trying to journal it out and do all the million things that I do to keep myself balanced and centered but I don't know I don't know George how it will go <laughs> and I'm worried <laughs> Jessica as as often happens I, I, I appreciate your candidness and, and also not only your willingness to share but your ability to characterize things in, in such a not only an emotional but a really understandable way and the thing that comes to me is like, you know, keeping it small. I mean, what a what a way of uh, describing how a person controls expectations in their lives in in all kinds of situations. So so I sure take a lot from that when I look to different things that I need to face in my life as they come up. So thanks for that. Chris was mentioned again there. So I'd like to hear from Chris again if there's anything in what Jessica just said that you'd like to amplify or give your perspective on. So Jessica's brought up on several occasions that she's got concerns for my experience on this and it brings up things that I might see or hear. It's been something that I've been thinking a lot about and um, through conversations with Jessica and others, I'm trying to you know prepare myself for the, the types of things I might see and the types of things that I, I might hear. But it's one of those things where, frankly, if you read about it in a book or if you hear a testimonial, it's not the same thing as, you know, standing in front of somebody that's perhaps living through it currently. Uh, and so I, one of my expectations is that I will uh, come away from it, seeing something that I wasn't prepared to see and um, learning things that I wouldn't have guessed I might learn. But uh, I don't worry too much about it because it's pretty typical with conversations between Jessica and I, where we get into something that we uh, we think is pretty heavy and we spend all of our time in that conversation being concerned for the other party. So she'll look out for me, I'm sure, <laughs> and, and prepare me when she can. And uh, I'll, I'll do my best to do the same for her. But, you know, to answer your question bluntly, I, I'm, I'm sure I will see things that I wasn't aware 
or that I couldn't have uh, dreamt of and meet people and have conversations that I would have uh, not otherwise had if uh, I hadn't gone on this. But I view that as a really good learning experience, frankly, something that a lot of people wouldn't get. We had one guest who mentioned to us that, that to really understand yourself, you need to go back to where your family, whether you're a settler or an Indigenous person, you need to go back because we were all Indigenous people somewhere, sometime. You need to go back to where your family was attached to the land. You know, I'm also a, a BC boy. The Okanagan Valley is where I grew up. And I've had a similar experience to what to what you've had when you when you go back to where you've where you've been. And with me, it's often the smell, like the smell of rain on sage. And you know, it's been dry, it rains. I got out of a vehicle once going through the Okanagan, and there was the smell of sage. And it was just everything just flooded through me. So I think these are things we we share as humans. This this attachment to the land maybe is not as far away from settler people as we think it is. You know, maybe we're not as abstracted from the land as our non-land-based lives suggest to us. I was going to riff on that, if that's okay. So one of one of my favorite hikes on Vancouver Island is in the the Souk region and the Souk River is a fairly lengthy one that you can hike along for, I would say, you know, roughly 15 or 20 kilometers. And when I lived here in my thirties, uh, I would do this same hike usually about once per week. And the end of the hike, I would sit in the, in the center of the river and uh, listen to the, the water rushing over the rocks. When I left to go work in Alberta, you know, nine, 10 years went by and uh, now it's 2022. I did that hike again for the first time, I think about two months ago. And I sat in that same river, sat on that same rock and heard the water rushing by me. <laughs> and uh, it uh, it was as though I had never left. Like the sounds were the same. The smells were the same. The trees that were on the riverbank were the same. When I lived in Alberta, if you had asked me to describe that scene to you, I couldn't do it because I couldn't remember. But when I came back and sat in it, it all came flooding back. It was incredibly familiar. So I'm not adding very much here, but that's that's my story about how great Vancouver Island is. <laughs> Often, one of the when we talk about truth reconciliation, and uh, we as Indigenous folks come into an organization, for example, today, um, recording this on National Indigenous Peoples Day. So I had a number of speaking engagements and things like that. And you know, you go in and you talk about cultural aspects and things like that, and it feels a bit like a you know a show and tell kind of thing, but it takes a lifetime to learn the balance of the medicine wheel, the teachings and the learnings from that and how you apply it to your life. But when you follow natural law, I think we as human beings, it's naturally there. And settlers have just have forgotten how to talk the language of the birds and the animals and the mountains and the insects. But you could feel it. You know it. Your heart knows it. You hear it. Right. And you talk to so many people who enjoy being out of doors or feel refreshed after going to the mountains or they look to the stars and they, they feel wisdom in them or they see stories and messages in them. It's learning to speak the language of those relations and how you apply those teachings to your life. That's the piece that a lot of people have forgotten. And it's it's something that I think runs in every human being. It's just been removed or stripped out through bureaucracies, like not to pick on the churches, but the churches, right? Not aligning with spirituality, but rather bureaucracy of religion or, or things like that, right? So again, circling back to the initial kind of conversation that we had around the limitations of the English language, it's something that is there that you could feel you can feel it, um, but you can't always name it the way for what it is. But I think we all feel it. Jessica, that really brought up a thought to me. You're, actually, Chris and Jessica, the comments you made, one of the things I thought about is bringing that le level of, I don't even want to call it empathy for the land because it's more than that. As you say, the limitations of the language, it's that feeling of what the land means to you personally. And then you look at something like a, pipeline protest from a particular nation and one side of me is well you know it's just a pipeline just going through a very small part of their land it's probably going to be safe 
you know, I have this side that just goes, oh, what's the big deal? We need that pipeline. But then the other side of, of it is, is what that land actually means and feels to the people who have lived on that land or hunted on that land. And that land has been part of their experience for the stories that go back 15,000 years. So I think that level of, of understanding is maybe something we need to, you know, again, we have all these words like bring to the table, but that we need to bring to the table when we have these discussions about, about how we can develop our resources in a more responsible way and with less distrust and and more actual understanding and um, forethought before we just say, that's where we're going. There's some Indigenous people we're going to cross metaphorically and, <laughs> and in other ways. And now we just have to consult with them and get it done rather than where do we work together to find the best place and, and to do it in a way that everybody can accept who's involved and be involved in, really. And George, it's a little deeper than that. I mean, you started out the podcast talking about the relationship, this concept of all my relations, right? So if you think of the land as your grandmother and running a pipeline, you're running a pipeline to your grandmother <laughs> without consent or without thought of how to do so respectfully. It's more than doing so thoughtfully and in consultation just with the people. If you think of land spirit as relation and of how the Indigenous worldview is, it's it's worse than that, right? It's also interesting, like in a recent conversation, I heard of somebody mention considering seven generations forward and seven generations back. It's interesting. You can learn a lot about somebody by examining how they draw a, a box around an issue, right? So, So for most folks these days... It's very common to think over a fiscal year, maybe a, a quarter, right? Maybe a five-year horizon. But when you expand that to uh, look at generations, then really the analysis that you do changes completely, right? If you take a natural resource, you're taking something from the future, right? It's not just about this next reporting period. And uh, that was something that, you know, it's related to systems level thinking. And I think it's creeping more and more into the engineering world. to Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation. I'm Jessica Vandenberg, my co-host is George Lee, and our guests are Chris Dennison and me. Let's start with Chris for last words, and then Jessica can have the ultimate last word on this whole conversation that we've had. I just want to say thanks for inviting me onto this and um, starting the conversation. I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation we have when we get back. And um, I don't have much to say beyond that. Uh, I'm really honored to do this with Jess. And it's going to be a learning experience for us both, I think. And we'll both take different things away from it. But uh, it is truly an honor. And I, I know that she didn't make this decision to make this trip or invite me on it. She didn't take that lightly. so. Thanks for it. And like I said, I'll look forward to that next conversation. Thanks. <laughs> I'm not sure what to say. Like, it, it's one of those things where uh, it's something I feel that I'm drawn to. It's something that there's been a lot of indicators that I should do. And I am hopeful for the healing impact that it might have. Like, I, I am very motivated to heal <laughs> a lot of the. Um, childhood traumas and the overall picture of things that have happened to me that weren't fair and weren't my fault, um, but I have to carry the bundle for, including the bundle of the past seven generations. And I'm hoping that this will, you know, click a few things in place and I can put some things behind me and let a few things go. And I'm hopeful because that is who I am, a hopeful, optimistic person. And I'm just so grateful that Chris has agreed to do this with me because, uh, like I said, uh, I've met hundreds of people in my lifetime, thousands of people. And it takes a special person to be able to do this 
almost blindly <laughs> with things being able to go anyway and still feel confident and look upon it as an adventure. He helps me keep it small. And for that, I'm so grateful. <laughs> that just sounds like a brilliant place to end this. Thank you both for the, for this conversation. Unsettled Journeys in Truth and Conciliation is a production of Features West Studios in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, a city located on Treaty 6 and Métis Zone 4 lands. Co-hosts Jessica Vandenberg of the Dene Taw First Nation and me, a settler named George Lee. Music written and performed by Kevin John of the Cayucat Checklist First Nation on Vancouver Island. Logo conceived and designed by Corrine Riedel and Sandy Brown Van Dam. Many thanks to our guests this time, one of whom is Chris Dennison of the University of Victoria, located in the traditional territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples. This land maintains an ongoing historical connection to at least five First Nations, the Songhees, the Esquimalt, the Sakem, the Sartlip, and the Seo. Our other guest this time is co-host Jessica Vandenberg, You can find us in the major podcast directories and some of the minor ones too. We've got a Facebook page and an Instagram account, so like us, share us, visit us, review us, all that stuff. We dedicate this episode to all the residents of Northern Turtle Island involved in the truth and conciliation process, and especially the people of James Smith Cree Nation and their neighbours in Weldon, Saskatchewan.